0: We're married, so we don't socially distance. Just so, just so you know, <laughs> that's my wife. Yeah. So, right there, so, so, uh, so anyway. So, hey, thanks for for those of you here, and for those many who are joining online. Thanks for being with us today. Hope you have your Bible with you today. Hope you have your Bible at home. By the way, if you're at home, uh, make sure to have those uh, communion elements ready. We're going to be doing that together before we're we're done today. You know, never in my life have I heard so much talk about how to do church. Over these past four months, we talked about, you know, socially distanced church and limited capacity church and drive-in and drive-through and pick-up and live-streaming, virtual communion, Zooming, lots of Zooming… For most of us, this would have just sounded like a bunch of gibberish four months ago, but these have become normal, everyday things just for people like us to talk about how to do church. And I've never heard so much talk about closing the church and reopening the church. And whether or not you should, and whether or not you even can. I've never been a part of so many conversations like these before in my life. And in light of all this, it seems like the perfect time for this teaching series that we're starting today that is entitled, You Can't Close the Church. And for the next five weeks, we want to dig in a little bit deeper into what the Bible has to say about the church. And to blow up some of the shallow misconceptions and be reminded about what it is that makes this spiritual body so absolutely unique. I think that far too many of us have lived far too long with a significantly watered-down view of what the church is all about, instead of seeing it as this remarkable, unstoppable people of God that Jesus promised it would be. And no, you can't closed the church. And the most basic reason why you can't is because Jesus said so. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered back to him. Well, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah or Jeremiah or some other prophet. But who do you say that I am? Jesus pressed. And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And in reply to this confession, Jesus exclaimed back, and I tell you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome. Now listen, there have always been a people of God But as Jesus is speaking these words, this manifestation that we know as the church, it is still on the horizon. It's the near horizon, but it is still yet to come. But even before it came to be, Jesus called it. Even before it came to be, Jesus promised that he would build it. Jesus guaranteed it would not be overcome. And you need to understand that the sense of this promise is not that the church no matter how small it looks against great opponents, would be a safe haven, and that even when Satan comes and huffs and puffs and tries to blow God's little chapel down, that it will hold up against it. That's not the sense of the promise. In fact, the sense of the promise is quite the opposite. Jesus said that he would build his church as an advancing force of heaven on earth and that when the church gets and pounds on the very gates of hell itself, it will not be able to hold up against the church and not the other way around. You can't close the church. And there are a lot of reasons for that. But the most basic reason is because the church is the only institution on planet earth that Jesus has personally promised to establish and to build up and to prove to be unstoppable. And I promise you, people have tried. People have tried to close the church for the past 2,000 years. It's not just that there have been those who tried to hold back or suppress or check the church. But there are those who have done their best to stamp it out. Philosophers have dismissed it. Academics have tried to disprove it. Social influencers have tried to discourage it. Totalitarian rulers have criminalized it. And I don't speak flippantly of what God's people have endured around the world because the persecution and the suffering at times has been unspeakable. I'm just saying that 2,000 years later... Guess what permeates literally every corner of the globe? The Church of Jesus Christ. I was talking this week with my friend Radha. In 1975, as a young man, Radha was a new enthusiastic Christian living in Cambodia when a dictator by the name of Pol Pot seized his home country with his regime of terror known as the Khmer Rouge. What unfolded in his country over the next four years, proportionally speaking, was the most devastating genocide of the 20th century. We remember it as the killing fields. During those four years, more than 25% of the entire population, numbering in millions, were slaughtered by torture, execution, starvation, and slave labor. Being a Christian under Pol Pot was and capital offense if you admitted to it. My friend Radha had seven siblings. Four years later, one of them was still alive. Radha was sent to a concentration camp where they worked 21 hours a day. They lined up at 3 a.m. If you were too sick to work, you went back, but you did not eat until you were well. And if you were well enough to work, then you worked until midnight and for your day labor you were given one small serving of rice. Radha was assigned a camp in the con- uh, assigned a wife in the concentration camp, and together they eventually escaped through the jungle, even as she was pregnant with their first child. Since they have escaped for the past 40 years, Radha and his family have made it their mission to help rebuild the Cambodian church. And I have been to Cambodia with Radha. And I have fellowshiped with the Cambodian pastors there. I have worshiped with the Cambodian believers there. And we also traveled up to the mountain on the Thai border where Pol Pot is buried alongside a dirt road. And I can report to you firsthand that today Pol Pot is dead, but the Cambodian church is very much alive. And while I'm at it, I also can report that Stalin is dead, but the Russian church is very much alive. And Mao tongue is stone cold in the grave, but do you know where the fastest growing Christianity in the world is? In the house churches of China. For that matter, Nietzsche is dead, but God is very much alive and his church is on the move in every single corner of the globe. If it was possible to close the church, I promise you, they would have already done it because many have tried. That's a pretty amazing story about my friend Radha, isn't it? The one who survived the killing fields? I hope you think so because I invited him here to Bethany in six weeks to tell a story. I felt like that was a story we should hear right now about how unbreakable and unstoppable, even against the most severe circumstances the church is, when we understand what the church is really about. I hope you think it's a good story because he's coming here to tell it. The problem for most of us is that all we've ever really seen, at least where we've lived, is this largely comfortable, socially acceptable version of what the church looks like. And as a result, there are a number of shallow misconceptions that are commonly accepted about what the church really is and what the church really is Now, I know that probably none of you who are listening to me have ever bought into any of these ideas, but it's possible that you may know someone who has. So you can take good notes and straighten them out about it. So let's tackle today five of the most common, shallow, cultural misconceptions about what is God's greatest hope on planet Earth for the world, the church. Shallow misconception number one. The church is a building that you go to. Now, why in the world would anyone ever think that? Because we talk like that. So where's your church at? Oh, we're easy to find. 7th Ave and Bethany Home Run. Oh, you really should go to the conference. It's going to be held at Living Streams Church. Now, look, I'm not going to become a grammar cop, like, you know, going around listening to everything, because I know that sometimes we just talk that way, and it's kind of shorthand. But as a result, there are people who really think that these buildings are Bethany Bible Church. The earliest Christians in the world would have considered this a ridiculous idea. In fact, even more so, it would not have even dawned on them that this was a possibility. As best we know, historically, it took 250 years for the first Christian church in the world to even have its own building. Before that, they just had to meet wherever they could, which generally meant someone who had a large house or some kind of public space. So it would have never occurred to the earliest Christians that anyone would ever confuse a building with a church. But lots of people think that today. In fact, if you get nothing else out of this today, before you doze off on the couch, just get this part right here. The church is never a building you go to, but it is always a people that you belong to. Okay? You get nothing else, just take that away. The church is never a building you go to, it's always a people that you belong to. And there's a lot of ways that the New Testament describes this, pictures this people, and that's what we're going to do over the next five weeks. We're going to unpack it, but every picture is always describing a people. It's describing us, who now belong together in Christ. Now, if you have your Bibles this morning, your mobile device, however you get to God's Word, open it up with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 2. Because in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul paints a powerful picture of what it means now that you and I belong together in Christ. Now, many people remember that Ephesians chapter 2 says this, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. And of course, that is amazingly true. That's in the first half of chapter 2, describing what God has done in Christ for you. Sometimes we don't spend as much time on the back half of chapter 2, which is what God in Christ has done for us. That's what I want to focus on today. Follow along as I start reading in verse 11, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember, That formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and he preached peace to you who are far away and preached peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Now, Paul is writing these things especially with Gentiles in mind, and he's writing writing it against the backdrop, the ugly backdrop of ethnic religious hostility. And he said, remember back to how it used to be before, before Jesus Christ changed everything between us. When you were separated, when you were excluded, when you were living without hope, when you were trying to exist without God. Remember what it felt like to be at arm's length, far away. Remember what it was like to live as a foreigner. Now, some of us hear these words and we understand the emotional import of them because we feel the way we sting, because of some of the categories that we have had to exist in in our life, because of the color of our skin, because of our country of origin, because of the legality of our status, because of the poverty of our upbringing, because of our lack of opportunity, we know what that feels like to be held at arm's length, always an outsider to what is the very best. Paul says don't take for granted what it means to fully belong. Remember how it used to be before Christ. Once perpetual outsiders to God's very best. Now consummate insiders to his holy people. You once were separated by race, but now Christ has unified both groups into one. You once were excluded to the people of God, but now you are included in the blessing. You once were without hope, but now you've been reconciled to God. You once were without God, but now by the Spirit you have access to the Father. You once were so far away, but now you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, in your Bible, look closely at verse 19. Because this is the culmination of Paul's contrast between the difference in us before Christ and after Christ. He says in verse 19, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. That is, those without legal standing. You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but you are fellow citizens with god's people and also members of his household citizens i've had many friends who have worked so hard to obtain their u.s citizenship and i know the deep sense of pride time and time again they have fell When the day finally came and they were able to repeat that oath of citizenship and walked away, knowing that in that instant they were no longer an outsider, but an insider in this great nation. Now their status is that they belong. They are an insider. They are fellow citizens. He says, that's what you are in the kingdom of God. But it's more than that, the Apostle Paul says. You are fellow citizens with God's people, and you are members of God's household. That is the New Testament word for family. It's not just that we have become citizens in the kingdom of heaven, but we have become members of the family of the king of heaven. You don't just belong to the kingdom. You familially belong to the king. Romans chapter 8 says it like this in verse 15. The Holy Spirit that we have received has brought about our adoption as His children. And now we call Him Abba, Father. For His Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And if God is your Father, then look around. Because that means that His children are now your sisters and brothers. The church is never about a building that you go to, but always it's about a people that you belong to. Now, there is nothing wrong with special attachments to a physical structure. Maybe in your family there is some special place. Your grandparents' farmhouse where everyone would gather for Christmas. It's the cabin that you vacation together had every single year. And as long as you live, just to think about that place, it will take you back. But even in this, we would always understand that it's about the family who gathers there, never about the place itself. We are family. And for those of us who have been here a while, we can't help but think about this place. And the special memories that are here for us. And all the ways we remember that we saw God work here. But in the end, this is just a physical structure. And even if they padlock the doors tonight, even if it burns down tonight, tomorrow morning the church is going to be just fine. Because we are not defined by the house. We are defined by the family that is inside the house. Here's a close runner-up. Shallow misconception number two. The church is an event that you attend. And why would anyone ever get that idea? Because that's exactly how we talk. We ask all the time, so what time is church? Oh, I'm having the hardest time keeping up. I mean, when it was a drive-in, it was 9. Then they went to the small venues; It was 8, 9, 10, and 11. Now it's, a, it, now it's just a 10. It's almost like they're trying to weed people out. What time is church? I know we talk that way, but really, church isn't something that you attend. Someone could object, I suppose. Yes, but when the church gathers, it is an event. And while it's true, again, it's a family difference. That's the difference between attending a show and coming home for a reunion. Are you going to make it to the reunion? Oh, I don't. The couches at Grandma's house are so uncomfortable. And I really don't feel like I'm being fed there. I mean, if they don't start making some changes, I'm going to start visiting some other families. (laughs) You're thinking, was that even a possibility? No, it's not a possibility. More than any other description in relationship to one another, the Bible calls us brothers and sisters. And that is why we get together so regularly. That is why we make such sacrifices for one another. That's why we're so loyal to each other. Why even in conflict, we still approach one another in such gentleness. This idea that some people have that church could mean slipping into an auditorium, being blessed by the music, being encouraged by the message, then slipping back out again to your car and driving away, basically disconnected from the people you worshipped with and call that church. To the first Christians, they would have considered this idea to be absolute absurdity. Church is not a weekly event. Shallow misconception number three. One of my personal favorites, the church is a buffet line to pick out the best parts. (laughs) The one that I most... And that is the great thing about a buffet, right? You go through, you pick out the parts you like, the skip parts that you don't, and just keep on moving down the line. Why can't the church be like that? Sometimes I have a conversation that goes like this. I'll say, so where is your home church? And someone will say, oh, I don't have any one church. I love them all. I mean, for preaching, Scottsdale Bible, but to get my worship on, CCV, of course. You know, for VBS, that would be Palm Crop men's group, Camelback, fitness classes, North Phoenix Baptist, hands down. I love them all. That's a buffet line thinking there. Now listen, we love the church of Jesus, and I mean all of its groupings and all of its gatherings, and we work together and we pray for each other and we cheer for each other. You know why? Because we're not competitors. That's why we're on the same team together. But functioning within the church ultimately as God designed it means belonging to a family and not showing up to a venue where services are dished out. And maybe it's not here at Bethany Bible Church, but I know that God is calling every single one of you to a body of believers where you will be family. And in family, is it not true that everybody gives what they can and they take what they need? And everybody does what they can and they don't worry about what they can't. And everybody takes turn both serving and being served in a family. When everybody gives what they can and takes what they need, somehow in a family, there's always enough to get by. Shallow misconception number four. Church is a person that I follow. And again, I'm just listening to the language we use here. Well, on vacation, we're hoping to to visit David Jeremiah's church. I've been thinking about Mark Driscoll's church. What do you think about Joel Olstein's church? And I'm not saying that any of them would describe their church that way, but lots of other people would describe it that way, and some actually start believing it, as if the key indispensable element to a church is some flashy or gifted personality who is at the center of it all. And the Apostle Paul would say, oh, a thousand times, no. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he wrote to those in the church there in the city of Corinth, Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters... In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, which, by the way, is the only name ultimately that matters in the church, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly united. But I've got to be honest with you, word has gotten back to me that some of you are saying I follow Paul and others are saying, well, I follow Apollos and still others saying I follow Cephas, my dear brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be this way. Oh, we can all be grateful in our immediate body of Christ, in the broader body of Christ, for leaders and servants and teachers who have impacted all of our lives and appointed us to Jesus. But no church is ever defined by a person, no matter how significant or gifted they may be. Here's one final shallow misconception, and I mention it because I probably come across it the most, and it is furthest from the truth. Church is something I do to get on God's good side. Oh, I don't know how I could ever expect to be saved. I don't know how I would ever get to heaven. You know, I haven't been to church in years. Now, although gathering with other believers is incredibly important in your spiritual life, I would be the first person to tell you it has absolutely nothing to do with you being in right standing with God. Here's what the Bible says in John 1.12. It says, To all who received Him, that is Jesus. To all who believed in His name, that is Jesus plus nothing more. Jesus plus nothing left. To all who believed in the name of Jesus, he gave them the right, the privilege, the authority to be what? To be children of God, to be family. So, uh, once again, do you go to the reunion so that you'll become family, or do you go to the reunion because you are family? See, because if you put your faith in Jesus and what he has done for you, in that instant of time, no matter how simple it may be, because of your faith in His work and nothing more, you are family. And if you are here today and you have never personally trusted in Jesus, I want you to understand that my goal in all of this is not to get you more deeply in church. My goal is to get you more deeply into Jesus. Because once you're in with Him, you're family. And once you're family, then everything else will start falling into place from there. So I don't know how things look to you right now. I don't know what your perspective is on everything that's happening in the world right now. I just want you to be encouraged. The church can't be closed. Because it's not some building, even one as nice as this, It's not some event that happens. It's not some particular ministry. It's not some exceptional personality. The church is an unbreakable band of people that we are a part of. And if you believe in Jesus, then you're on the inside now. You are a legal citizen of heaven right now. Even more than that, you are a family for it. So a few years back, I wrote a little article entitled, Why I Didn't Skip Church. I wasn't unaware, I I was unaware the day I wrote it that at the same time a very popular Christian author had just put out his own article declaring that he no longer found any value in being a part of the church. Christianity Today thought my article was a response to his, so they picked it up and they published it. Uh, I wasn't trying to debate anything, I was just trying to share my own experience. So here's how it went. Why I didn't skip church, even though I really wanted to. Not long ago, I was spending the weekend at the beach, and when Saturday came, I started thinking about church the next day. Showing up seemed like the right thing to do, there was another part of me that just wanted to spend a quiet morning on the balcony watching the waves and enjoying the presence of the Lord alone with a cup of coffee. But it seemed like the right thing to do. I am a pastor, so of course my first inclination was to do a quick Google search, find what appeared to be the most happening church within driving range, and go experience the best and steal whatever good ideas I could find there. But I wasn't up for it. It felt too calculated, sounded like too much work. So I took a path less traveled. I noticed that just two blocks down on a little side street was a small weather-beaten community church. Its paint had begun to peel and the bell in the steeple was rusting. However, I decided that the next morning I would attend. I would simply gather together with the nearest group of believers in Jesus that were getting together. So on Sunday morning at 9.55, with my Bible in hand, I walked across the gravel parking lot towards the front doors of the church. Honestly, my expectations were very low. And I'm sorry to report that in no way were my expectations exceeded. A word of confession is probably in order at this point. I am a religious professional. One of the occupational hazards of what I do is that I tend to view church services from a critical perspective of execution. Were the greeters friendly? Was the signage clear? Did the worship flow? Was the message homiletically sound? Were the people challenged to action? It is incredibly hard for me to drop all of that and just enter into the presence and hear a word from the Lord. I'm not saying this is right. I'm making a confession here. And I tried. I really, really tried. I prayed. I focused my heart. I specifically asked God to speak to me, and I consciously made a note of everything positively that I encountered, but it didn't work very well, and I got almost nothing out of it at all. The 63 people who were there looked like they hadn't had a visitor walk in off the street for a long, long time, and I'm not sure they knew what to do with one either. There were some bulletins sitting on a chair, so I grabbed one for myself. The music was poor. Partway through, the electric organ gave out. Someone ran to a closet and reset the breaker to get it fired up again. (laughs) The pastor was valiant in his courage, but short on content and inspiration. I almost felt like when he looked at me, it was with an apology in his eye. (laughs) After the benediction, I offered a few awkward handshakes, but then quietly ambled back out again. As I crunched back across the gravel, I began to ask if it had been worth it. If I had to do it all over again, would I have still made the trek, or would I have just taken my Bible and cup of coffee out onto the balcony by myself and spent time with him looking at the ocean? It was one of those moments of inner dialogue that don't happen often enough. I decided as I walked home that if I had to do it all over again, I would still go. Now, don't get me wrong, I strongly prefer moving inspiration from the Word of God and excellence in music. If it was about me, I could make a list of at least a hundred things that I would want to experience in a worship gathering. But I decided that for all of the things lacking, if I had to do it all over again, I would still go to that rickety old church. In fact, I concluded if this was the last congregation left on earth, they would be able to count on me and they gather together. These are my people, I heard my heart say. They may be quirky and backwards at times. They may frustrate me to no end, but they are still my people. And when my people get together, I don't miss. I work very hard to make people want to come to church. I believe that every Sunday is a good Sunday, and I try to act like it too. I want to do everything possible for people to be engaged, taught, connected, moved, and most importantly, brought into the life-changing presence of Almighty God. But that Sunday morning was an important reminder for someone like me that at the end of the day, church is not a service that happens. It's a people who gather. These people are family to me, and by the grace of God, I belong to this family. And as much as is possible, I try to never miss a family gathering. You know, I just, I just want to close this morning. For those of you who are sitting here, for those of you online. And I just want to ask you a question. If you've never stepped across the line of faith to become family, what would hold you back? It's putting your faith in Jesus plus nothing more, Jesus plus nothing less. Just Jesus. And if you believe in him and his finished work in the cross, putting your faith in that makes you family, and family forever. With God the Father, you belong in the household, and like it or not, that means we're brothers and sisters. All it takes is your faith. I would encourage you just today, With every head bowed and every eye closed, you could just pray a simple prayer like this. Father, I know that you love me, and though I've sinned and I'm not deserving, I believe that Jesus paid the price for me. And so I put my faith in your word, that you will save me, that you'll forgive me, that you'll change me, that you'll make me family. And that even now you're beginning to prepare a place for me and where you are someday I will be there also. I'm taking you at your word that from this moment forward, I will be family. You know, if you just prayed a simple prayer like that, welcome to the family because that's all it takes in this moment or any moment just to put your faith in Jesus. And In fact, if today is that day for you, I would like to encourage you to just, would you let me know that somehow? I have a gift I'd like to give to you. We'd like to help you in terms of taking next steps. But it all starts with being family. My goal is not to get you deeper into church. My goal is to get you deeper into Jesus.